Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 2, starting Matthew chapter 2 in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I, may, I too may come and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them, until it stood, it came and stood over the place where the child was. And they saw the star, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while while it was still night, and left for Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I, I called my son. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, and he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew the male children, all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they they were no more. Okay, starting in verse 1. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. So this was Herod the king or Herod the Great, the one who uh, worked to, to, rebuild the, to, to rebuild the whole temple compound. It was Herod that actually had the, the top of that mountain in Jerusalem actually shaved off to make a big flat area so he can build this city much larger than it had been built originally. At one time, that was the highest mountain around it. But if you go to Jerusalem now, that's no longer the highest mountain. The whole top has been cut off. It was excavated, and the excavation was by Herod. This Herod actually became a Jew, or so he said he became a Jew. He was deeply paranoid. Um, Herod Herod was, was so paranoid about his position... He killed several of his own sons. In fact, Caesar said, said that, that uh, it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his own child. 
because Herod was threatened by his own children, but his own pig he didn't touch because he claimed to have become a Jew. Uh, Herod was called King Herod. Herod had made requests of Caesar to be able to be called king of that region of Judea. And, and, Herod act, and Caesar actually granted him that title, said that he could be called king of that area. His sons, who, who were reigning in his place after him, were no longer called by that title. And I don't recall exactly, I'd, I'd, I'd read this uh, several years ago, but I think one of his sons may have made request to bear that same title of Caesar and, and had gotten in real trouble with Caesar because of even making such a request. But he was deeply paranoid for his position and protective of his position. And then it says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. These Magi were astronomers, astrologers, and, and uh, uh, men who, who studied the natural sciences. So these were the wise men of that day. They were not Jews. They came from actually the area of Babylon, by, by the Euphrates River, which is present-day Iraq. Now, what's interesting is that these men would come all that distance to see Jesus. It says that Magi arrived in Jerusalem, and they said, Where is he who is born King of the Jews? For a star appeared in the east, and we've come to worship him. Now, first of all, we should ask, why would they care? I mean, who cares? that a child should be born in Jerusalem. Why would people living by the Euphrates River, who are not Jews, why on earth would they care? Secondly, beyond just their interest, why would they come to worship Him? What's going on here? These, remember, are different than the shepherds that are spoken about in the book, in, in the Gospel according to Luke. He mentioned shepherds that were told immediately upon the birth of Jesus that he was born, and they went, and they saw Mary and Joseph, and they saw the child lying in the manger, and they said, he, the, the, the angel said, this will be a sign to you. You will see a child lying in a manger and wrapped in, in cloth. Wrapped in cloth. So that was not normal apparel, or else it would not have been a sign. These were actually the grave cloths that were used in those caves that are used, uh, uh, because there, there weren't wooden barns, but caves that all around that area. But this is actually probably years later. And I know that when we have our, our little nativity scenes, we have, we have shepherds and we have these three little kings. There were not, these were not kings. They were magi. They were wise men. They were not kings. They were studiers of natural sciences. Generally, people who, who have advanced degrees in natural science do not become kings. They, uh, they remain poor. <laughs> Uh, uh, but they have a very good life. So the, these were not kings, and I know that we have these songs, and the songs are all wrong. We have no idea how many of them there were. All we know is that there, were, there was more than one. There may have been three. There may have been 300 of them. We don't know. But the reason we know that this may have been years later is because it says in verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And then when Herod had all the male children killed because he wanted to, to make sure that this king wasn't alive, it was every male, ch every male child two years old and younger. 
So there's a, a good chance that this was a year, maybe even as much as two years after the birth of Jesus that these guys show up. But why would they care? Who cares? I mean, when, when, a, when a new king is born, do people really care outside that own, their own country? And in fact, nobody in Jerusalem even knew. Well, if you look back in, uh, actually in Numbers chapter 24, there was a prophecy. There was a prophecy way back in the book of Numbers. So we're talking like 3,000 years earlier. There was a prophecy. And actually there's a prophecy, and if you look back in actually Numbers chapter 22, there was a prophecy by a man, and his name was Balaam. In Numbers 22, verse 5, So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, that is the Euphrates River, in the land of the sons of the people, to call him, saying, Behold, the people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. So what had happened was, the king, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the king Balak, as the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and, and after 40 years they were about to march into the promised land and they were conquering everybody in their path, he became very worried. So he contracted with this prophet named Balaam who lived by the Euphrates River in this very area of Babylon and he contracted, he says, come and curse these people for me. Balaam gets there and he says, I can't curse them. God won't let me curse them. These, son, these are sons of Israel, and I can only bless them. And Balak paid him more money. He says, curse them, and he wouldn't curse them. But he, in fact, he prophesied over them in Numbers chapter 24. In Numbers 24:17 it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. So you see, there was a prophecy 3,000 years before that by a man who came from the same land as these magi saying, not now, but in a long time in the future. So we're talking, well, well it, it was um, thousands of years prior to that. Probably 3,000 years ago from now, probably 1,000 years at least from, from when these people were that had prophesied that there was going to be a star that was going to come forth. And this would be, indeed, the scepter that would rise up and shall conquer. So there was this indication of a star. Now, why else should they care? <clears throat> you remember Daniel? Remember, there's a, there's a whole book in the Bible called the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, all the wise men... Some, some Bibles call it the Chaldeans, some, people the wise, some scriptures the wise men. These were the men who studied astrology, astronomy, and natural sciences were going to be killed because they couldn't interpret the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so De King Nebuchadnezzar said, kill all the wise men, all the scientists, just kill them. They don't have good answers for me. And so they got really worried and Daniel was actually among the people who were going to be killed. Because Daniel had been trained in this very school. Daniel said, I will listen to God and God will reveal to me the dream and its interpretation. And he got, he, God gave him the dream and its interpretation. And so, if you, if you look in Daniel chapter 2, you can actually even see that. Now, where was Babylon? It was right by the Euphrates River. 
the present-day Iraq, and that's where Daniel lived. And actually, Daniel later lived in present-day Iran, which was Persia, because when the Persians came and took over, they just transported him to the other side of the river there, and, and he, he, lived, he lived there in, in what was Persia. And it was from that day, actually, that the Jews have lived in Persia, or in, in, in Iran. So in Daniel chapter 2, actually there's this, in verse 12 and 13, Daniel 2, 12 and 13, it says, Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And then in verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then in verse 46 of Daniel chapter 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel, and gave orders to present him with an offering of fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel became the dean of the school of natural sciences in Babylon. Daniel taught these men what was going to take place. There was a prophecy by a man man named Balaam a thousand years before that. And now Daniel is teaching these men. And that is the only indication that we have why these men in Babylon, from Babylon, from beyond the Euphrates River, should even care that this one has been born. All this time they had been waiting. They saw a star hovering, and they came and they went. That's why they cared. Other than that, why on earth would they care? And it said they have come to worship him because the prophecy had been that this will be the one that will rule forever and ever. In verse 3, when King Herod heard the, when King Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So these men come to worship this boy who's been born king and it troubles King Herod because his kingdom is threatened and it troubles all Jerusalem with him because it upset their theology. They had not recognized it. You know, there's many times that teachers that that may not come from our denomination or from our little group, may come with some great revelation in understanding of the Scriptures, and we ought to have open hearts. And I know that, that there's this tendency among evangelicals to dismiss, for example, the teachings of charismatics. But you ought to do away with that tendency in your own heart, because many times charismatics will come with the greatest of teachings to bless your heart. And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, they inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So remember, these men that had come from Babylon didn't know the exact location. All they saw was the star, and they had come. And, it, and they called together. the, the uh, And, and so, so Herod brought together all, all these leaders of Israel. He says, where is the Messiah going to be born when he's born? And they said, well, there's a verse, actually. There's a verse, actually, in Micah. Micah the prophet wrote, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you see how precise this thing is? The scriptures are so accurate. And this is the word of truth that tells 
us what the past was and what the future will be. And you and I have it right here. And the rest of the world totally neglects this. And what you and I, the person of Jesus Christ, that you and I come to worship and come to honor this book, it is troubling to the rest of the world. Absolutely troubling. And so they go to Bethlehem. Now Herod finds out from them, he says in verse 7, he had found out the exact time the star had appeared. He called the Magi secretly. He wanted to know exactly when the star appeared. Why exactly? Because then he knew who to kill. And that's why he chose all male children two years old and younger. Just to make sure he, get them, he got them all. So probably the boy was, I don't know, maybe a year old. Maybe he chose a year on either side. And then he said, he said, you go to Bethlehem and you search. And when you find him, let me know so that I could come and worship him too. Which he said in deception, he wanted to kill him. And hearing this, they went on their way and they came. And they brought these gifts of gold, which was the gift for a king. Frankincense and myrrh were the gifts that that were what were used to bury people. So even when they saw the child, they were speaking that this child was going to die. And then in verse 12, they've been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, and the Magi left for their own country by another way. So you see in verse 3, Herod the king in all Jerusalem was troubled that these men had come to worship. So why didn't the Magi say, well, you know, if we've troubled Herod and we've troubled all these other people, let's just go back to Babylon. You know, we really don't want to cause trouble for people, right? Because that's the worst thing to do, is to offend somebody. We really wouldn't want to offend anyone, right? Because offense is the worst sin that could ever be displayed. To ever offend anyone, right? We should never offend anyone. If you and I do not offend people by our lives, we're not alive. Just our very existence offends some people. That you are a believer will offend people. That you worship Jesus is offensive to people. That you speak of Jesus offends people. So therefore, should you stop? Because really, you don't want to offend people, right? These people could well have left because they were causing all this ruckus in Jerusalem. Why cause all these problems? Why not, why not just live quietly? Maybe we should go just very, very quietly and go to church very secretly and very quietly. We have no business inviting other people because we might offend somebody by inviting them. You know, I was really amazed last year when, when, when I was before some students at, at, at this symposium, which I actually think now is, is, has been put online. I said, I said to the audience, why do you find it offensive if your house were on fire and I, were, I was going by and I stopped and knocked on your door and said, hey, I think your house is on fire. Why would you be offended by that? And even if your house wasn't on fire at the time, but I saw some smoke and I thought it was on fire, and my knocking on the door, you know, if somebody knocked on my door and said, hey, I think your house is on fire, and it turned out and I said, well, no, it's really not on fire, I'm, I'm just grilling some steaks in the backyard. I mean, I'd be really touched by their stopping to tell me, wouldn't you? I'd say, come on in, have some steaks. Have some steaks. 
And one girl said, no, I would be offended. If my house wasn't on fire and somebody told me it was on fire, I'd be offended. And I'm thinking, what world do you live in? Why would you be offended if somebody sincerely stopped and knocked on your door and said, hey, your house is on fire? And if you should point out, no, I'm just grilling some steaks in the backyard, I would invite them in. Say, have some steaks with us. That was really kind of you to stop. And then in verse 12, it says, They were warned in God, by God in a dream not to return to Herod, and the Magi left for their own country by another way. And then in verse 16, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. Herod, in verse 7, in, in, in verse 8, said, You go to Bethlehem, go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too come and worship him. Herod, the king told them, this is what you are to do. And guess what? They didn't listen to him. They did not listen to the governing authority of that land. They listened to God, who superseded the governing authority of that land. Unless any of you think I'm preaching, uh, preaching insurrection... Let me just tell you that the scriptures are very clear when there are instances for civil disobedience. And all that I can see in scripture are in these cases. Number one, when it's human life. When there's human life at stake, you are allowed to, to disobey civil authority according to the scriptures. There are multiple examples of that. One is where the midwives in Israel were told by... Pharaoh, who was ruler and king over all the land, kill all the male children that are born to the Israelite women. It says that they did not kill the male children, and God blessed them richly for not killing the male children, even through civil disobedience. They did not kill them. So one is for human life, imminent human life. Another, Rahab. Rahab did not turn in the spies of Israel, turn them in to be killed. In fact, she protected them and hid them. And God greatly blessed her. So for the protection of human life, it is okay to disobey civil authority. It is not okay to disobey civil authority for paying of taxes. It is not okay for disobeying civil authority so that you can speed. That is not okay. But the instances where it is okay is for human life. Another instance where it's okay is to worship. Daniel was told by King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down and worship this image that he had had built and not to worship any other god. And Daniel disobeyed that civil law and worshipped God and worshipped God only. And Daniel was blessed for worshipping God as were his three friends. Another is to walk in salvation. Jesus says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Even disobeying your father and your mother, and I am very supportive of fathers and mothers, but when they tell us, if they tell us that we shouldn't get saved, we get saved anyway. Because we are to love God more than we love our mother or our father. And the last example The last thing is in preaching the gospel. So it is for human life, for worship, for salvation, and for preaching. 
multiple examples in the Scriptures where people were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. Look in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were told not to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And he gave... Uh, um, wrong book. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You see, they had been instructed by the council and the high priest not to preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John were continuing to preach in the name of Jesus. Civil disobedience. They continued preaching. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging Him on the cross. You see what they said? They said, Stop preaching in this name. You mean to put His blood upon us. Don't preach in that name anymore and stop trying to put His blood upon us. And you know what they said? They said, Oh, what name? You mean Jesus? Who your father, whom you put to death by hanging Him on the cross? I mean, they just drilled it right back at Him. They said, don't use that name, and they used that name. They said, don't put His blood upon us. Boom! He put the blood right back on Him. They spoke the name of Jesus. They preached it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. And they summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Civil disobedience in those cases is scripturally warranted. And we are to love God more than we love anyone else or any other authority. We are to love God. We are to be protectors of human life. And we are to speak the Word. God can give you discretion and discernment in preaching. I have always worked in secular universities. And I have never felt restricted in speaking the Word. So people who argue that, oh, well, you know, this is a secular environment, so I can't talk. <laughs> I'm justified. I really don't have to because this is a secular environment. Wrong. You are wrong. You pray to God for wisdom on how you can speak the Word of God. You pray to God for wisdom on how you can speak. Because the pattern in Scripture is that they preach the Word. They always preach the Word. Wherever they went, they preached the Word. These men were told by God, don't go back to Herod. He doesn't mean well for this child. And to protect the human life, to protect the life of Jesus, they disobeyed civil authority. And in those cases, it is okay. In fact, you will be blessed when you have opposition by civil authority and you disobey it in those cases. You will be blessed by God. That's the pattern of Scripture. In verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to stretch out, is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod, 
This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Look at the disruption again on the life of Mary and Joseph. The disruption in having to be with a child, having to be pregnant with a child before marriage. The disruption on marrying a woman who was already pregnant. The disruption in saying, this is what your child's occupation is going to be, and this is what his name will be. Another disruption that came upon their lives actually is the whole reason that they are in in Bethlehem to begin with. In Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, how did they get to Bethlehem? Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Remember that both Mary and Joseph were descendants of David from Bethlehem. So they had to go back to their original city. That's why they were there. Did you know God a lot of times, through circumstances, speaks to us? Through circumstances. You know, Watchman Nee says, never get so spiritual that you don't have to be directed by God through circumstances. God had a decree go out from Caesar Augustus. From Rome, a decree went out to get this poor couple to leave Nazareth to go down to Bethlehem. And Mary was great with child. When a woman is great with child, she doesn't like to walk a long distance. I know we have these pictures of her sitting on the back of a donkey. Now that couldn't be very comfortable, but it's unlikely she was sitting on the back of a donkey because they were such a poor family. Remember when they had to make up an offering for Jesus and His birth... They used two turtle doves. That's all they could afford. That was what the poorest families used. So it's highly unlikely that she even sat upon a donkey. So here's Mary just waddling along from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, which is, I don't know how many days' journey, but it's got to be at least a week. Is Umbreen here? You you can tell us exactly how long. Not here. All right. So it it, it would take at least a week. Trust me. I mean, I've been there. It would take a long time. And plus, when women are in this sort of state, they're not themselves. And, and I know this. My wife has the biggest heart of, of all people on earth. Her heart is as big as a house. She's huge. She's constantly giving of herself to other people. When we were in the hospital and she, had, she was about to give birth, she just, this different attitude came over her. And, and I remember when... Uh, She's giving birth to Umbreen. You know, it's just hours and hours you're waiting. And, and one of these nurses' helpers, this, this old lady, very sweet lady, would come in and, you know, look at the monitors and the meters and then go out. And then she said to me, just as the lady left, she says, I don't like the way the lady looks with her glasses. Because she looks at the meter. So what are you talking about? Turns out, you know, I, the lady... She was an older lady, so she had these reading glasses on, and she would just crunch her nose a little bit to get the reading glasses to sit right so she could read the meter. And that little act bothered my wife, which is so untypical, so atypical for for Shireen. She's not like that at all. She usually honors older people tremendously. But what happens to women in this time, there's all these hormones flowing that change the behavior. 
Totally. She'd say to me, she'd be sitting in bed like that in the hospital saying, that trash is getting me sick. Dump the trash. I said, what trash? She said, the trash. The trash can. There's trash in it. I said, well, it's a trash can. It's supposed to be trash in it. She said, dump it. Dump it. It's getting me sick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> dump the trash. I mean, by the time, by the, time the, the other kids were born, it was much easier. I mean, I just... Like when Josiah was born, the Gulf War, Gulf War I, was just starting. And, you know, I could turn on the TV and watching, you know, all these bombs fall in Baghdad. And, and <laughs> you know, just turn off the other, the other side and just realize that this is just the way it is. Mary was probably not very comfortable in this time. Do you think, you know, this, this was really not nice of God to upset Mary in this time and have a decree going at this time when she's great with child, about to give birth, and she's got to waddle down from... Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know, there's a lot of things in life that get in our way. And life isn't easy. And just because life isn't easy doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. He probably loved Mary and Joseph a lot. I mean, she's just about to bear God's own son. Life is full of these sort of things. And in fact... It's sometimes in these times that we have the hardest experiences. God is like that. It brings something out of us. It teaches us things. Again, God was upsetting their lives. So here they are, settled kind of for a year or two in, in, in Bethlehem. And then God says, you better get out of here tonight. It says, while it was still dark... You know, so, so Joseph has this dream, and, it, and, and uh, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night. This is in, in Matthew 2.14, while it was still night. So the very same night he had the dream, he's got to wake up Mary, who's got this, you know, this, this toddler saying, uh, we got to get going. Where would you like to go now, Joseph? Oh, well, we're just going to flee to Egypt. Remember, Egypt... Egypt is a long way. You've got to go across the, the, the whole Sinai Peninsula. Egypt? Yeah, yeah, I had a dream. Joseph, I had a dream. God upsets our lives all the time. Things happen in life, and it's not the end, and it's not because God doesn't love you. And... You might be, you know, just about to give birth to a child and you've got to go take a job in some other city. Well, I like my church. I like my friends. I like... Well, you've you got to do it. I mean, things happen. And it's not because God doesn't love you. Look at these magi. I mean, these magi came from all this distance to worship for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then go back. Everybody who wants to serve God must learn to give of their lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Whoever loves his life shall lose it, but whoever hates his life shall keep it to life eternal. We give of our lives. I have been so struck by this this week. You know, as I, as I watch the lives of unbelievers, I'm amazed at the degree of selfishness. And what God does when He calls us in breaking patterns of selfishness. 
I look at the lives of unbelievers and I think, you don't do anything for anybody except yourself. There's nothing there. What do you ever do for anyone except yourself? You feed your fat face, you only spend money on your, your fat self, and you don't do anything for anyone except yourself. And what God does is He calls us and He says, I don't want you to be selfish. I want you to give your life for another. You come to worship another. You come to serve another. You know, I look at, at, at for example, my own brother. He and I grew up in the same house. We, had this, we were given the same opportunities, the same things. The guy can, is always just living on the edge of survival. Just barely surviving. He makes a great salary, but it's never quite enough. And he's never content. There's just no contentment. And I thank God for who Jesus is and the contentment that He gives us as believers. I mean, I am so content. I love my wife so much. I really do. I tell her, if, if I were a woman, I'd love to be her so I could have a husband like me. I mean, I just love her so much. I really do. I love my home. I love my family. I love my job. I mean, people say, how can you be in your office all the time? I love my office. It just, just give me an internet connection and, and you know, online journals and, and a research lab. And I'm a happy guy. I mean, just, just so content in what God has given me and how my colleagues can come to work every day spitting and cursing and grunting about how miserable life is. I'm like, what world do you live in? It all comes from God. When we give of ourselves to others, we are fulfilled. A student of mine became a professor and he saw my life. He, he was my student from... He came the second year I was a professor, so he just saw my life early from the beginning. And he was an undergraduate when I was starting as a professor. He saw my life. This guy never had time for anything. He and his wife were just go, go, go. And then he became a professor and he was just go, 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 you know. And very creative guy. Never had time to stop and have children with his wife. Because the two of them were, you know, jet-setting and too busy. I'd go to his office and the journals were still wrapped up in their... In, in, in their uh, in their coverings, they'd never been open. He never even had time to read journals. I'm like, I mean, this is part of what you've got to do as a professor. You've got to read all these journals and keep up with it. He ended up not getting tenure. I mean, this guy just threw himself into his work, but he never had time for anything. So I had time for all sorts of stuff. You know, I had prison ministry every Monday night for ten years from the time I started as a professor. When we give our lives for others, we gain it. Whoever desires to keep his life shall lose it, but he who, who loses his life for my sake shall keep it to life eternal. This is the pattern that we see in the Scriptures. These people gave of their, themselves and of their lives, and they accomplished so much. And if you desire to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. Absolutely lose it. You've got no time to serve in a church. You've got no time to serve in a campus group. You've got no time to wake up and spend time with God. Guess what? Your life is being lost right in front of you. Right in front of you. Miss Busy. Mr. Busy. Your life is being lost right in front of you. But when you learn to give up your life for others, 
and serve others in some other capacity that causes you to have to give up yourself and of your own time and of your own resources, guess what? You're gaining your life in every one of those actions you are gaining of your life. And if your life is just feeding your own face and feeding your own spirit, just saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. Ah, well, you know, I don't quite like that teaching. I think I'll go somewhere else where I get fed better. Yeah, I just got to get fatter. I just got to get fed. How about you feed somebody else? And then in that, you'll be fed truly. Because it's when you learn to give out that you learn to receive, that you, that, that you get to receive. Look in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. This is John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Look at that. If you learn to serve God, the Father will honor you. The Father will bless you richly. It is out of learning to give that we receive. These magi came a long way to worship Jesus for 15 minutes. They gave of themselves and then they took out these treasures they brought with them. These expensive spices and this gold and they laid it at His feet and they gave. And in that, they deeply received. It is out of a life of service that we get. Out of a life of service. I mean, I look at my wife. This woman is always giving. I mean, she's always, she's always thinking about this student and that student and this student. I'm like... I mean, they'll be all right. She said, oh no, they must be hungry. I said, trust me, they know how to get food for themselves. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole servery downstairs in their building. Yeah, but, you know, they don't get food at this exact time. I mean, she's just constantly, her heart is always giving out. But I've never met a woman who's more content, too. I mean, she just loves life, loves people, never has a bad word to say about anything. It is out of a life of service that we are fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich with life. And it cries out, speaking life to us. Father, your word speaks life. Lord, I thank You that the example again and again is that if we worship Him and serve Him and obey Him, our lives are truly blessed. In the midst of that, there may be turmoils and there may be things that, that cause us to be tired and haggard. But Lord, in the end, there is richness and life. Father, I pray for these young people that they would have lives of giving and of service to You. That they would learn to worship You and to spend time with You. And they would learn what it means to serve You 
and in that have life. Father, thank you for the life of Jesus who demonstrated to us a life that is poured out for others and it brought life to the world. Father, may we follow his example. Lord, I pray for these young people that you grant them good lives, that they would learn to give of themselves and may your grace be upon them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank <laughs> you.